My name is John Whitfleet. I'm the director of the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. Welcome to the January series 2010 of Calvin College. I would ask you all to please silence your cell phones as we begin. And then let us pray together. God of grace and glory, truly our hearts are restless until they rest in you. As we speak and listen today, we pray that you will make us aware of our deepest desires and how they are transformed by the work of your Holy Spirit. And then we pray that you will kindle in us a Pentecostal fervor for the discipling of our bodies and minds and hearts so that we truly can reflect the love and grace and truth of Jesus Christ in all we do in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, Matt Walhout, who is Dean of Research here at Calvin College, will introduce our speaker. Good afternoon and welcome. Our lecturer today is the artist formerly known as James K.A. Smith but known to colleagues across Calvin's campus and elsewhere simply as Jamie. Every academic discipline has its rock stars, and in the field of philosophical theology, Jamie Smith has reached that status. He's been enormously productive and influential as a young scholar. In just the first decade of his career, he's authored a dozen books and several dozen academic articles. His work appeals to various audiences throughout the church and academia, Bridging cultural gaps comes naturally to Jamie Smith because his own personal formation has required him to be a bridge builder. He was born in a farming community and now studies the urban church. He's a Bible college graduate with a PhD in postmodern philosophy. He's a fundamentalist turned Pentecostal who took a fancy to speaking in reformed tongues. (laughs) His Christianity has a warm heart and a hard-hitting, sharply critical mind. He is indeed the consummate crossover artist, a little bit country and a little bit rock and roll. (laughs) That combination makes for a powerful Christian voice in contemporary culture. It allows Jamie to be persuasive as he urges us not to forget the wisdom of Augustine and Calvin, nor to fear the recent philosophies of Derrida and Rorty. His background and training have also given him an understanding of the many internal contours of the Christian church. He has not just seen these contours, but he's also felt them and been molded by them. And so it is that he comes to us today to speak about his recent book, Desiring the Kingdom, in which he examines the idea that all of Christian thought and action should be molded and shaped by communal practices of the church. Calvin College is grateful to the Calvin Academy for Lifelong Learning for underwriting today's presentation. Please join me in welcoming Jamie Smith. Thanks so much. It's uh, an honor and a privilege uh, to have this opportunity to speak with you. And thanks for that kind introduction. And a prayer that has lines from St. Augustine always warms my heart. I'm also grateful to the Call Program. In fact, it's a special treat for me uh, to be have this day sponsored by the Call Program. Uh, they sort of take over the hallway in Heminga Hall there every afternoon, and it's this vibrant intellectual culture that I think is just fabulous. Special shout out, too, to Canada, my compatriots back in Canada. Uh, I apologize that I have lost my accent. <clears throat> However, you will be glad to know that I started my morning with my coffee in a Tim Hortons mug. So I am keeping the faith as best I can. In recent years, we've heard a lot about tensions and conflicts between the religious and the secular. And we've heard uh, secular new atheists denouncing the naivete of religious beliefs. 
or we've heard religious culture warriors haranguing the uh, um, new atheist rejection of religious beliefs. Any band on talk radio will give you a little flavor of this or read the Atlantic Monthly or the New Yorker for the other side of the story. Behind all of this, however, is an assumption about the nature of religion. And it assumes that religion is defined in terms of doctrines, beliefs, and ideas. But the question I want to raise today is, what if religion isn't fundamentally a matter of belief? What if religion is not defined primarily by a set of beliefs and doctrines, but actually by a set of practices? So more specifically, what if we thought about religion primarily in terms of worship? How would that change our uh, analysis of our cultural landscape? Then we would need to ask a new question. Not who is religious, but where is religion? Because if religion is more a certain kind of practice than a certain set of beliefs, then that means religion might be where we least expect it. And we will need, uh, let's say we'll need a kind of new radar to pick up on religion in our culture. Now to do that, let me, let, let's try to walk through an example. Uh, I'm going to invite you on a little tour. Let's imagine that we are cultural anthropologists from Mars. And um, we have come to planet Earth to try to understand something of Earthlings' religious behavior. And so I want, and we've landed in Grand Rapids, what better place to start? Uh, I want to now invite you to a tour, a sort of participant-observer pilgrimage to a local religious site. I would invite you to sort of close your eyes and imagine, but it is just after lunch and I don't want to lose anybody. So, let's set out on our tour. We're approaching this mammoth religious site. It's ringed by this moat of colorful asphalt because there are just tons and tons of pilgrims there every day parked in the parking lot. We get out. We make our way up to the entrance of this temple. It's this pretty flashy set of colonnades and we walk through these arches and we make our way into a kind of narthex of sorts and it sort of receives us into that space and there's some help there if you need direction. So it welcomes you into this narthex, and you can tell the regulars, because they just shoot in, they know exactly what to do, and we're, but we're newcomers, so we're grateful to have this little bit of uh, orientation as we get into the space. This religious site is humongous. This makes medieval cathedrals look tiny. And so we start wending our way through this space, fairly contemplative. In fact, the way it's organized feels like some of those ancient labyrinths, and you sort of go through octagons and circles. And what's interesting is lined up all along the side are all these chapels of devotion. And what attracts us in all of these chapels of devotion is the icons that are standing in the windows. And these aren't boring, old, flat, two-dimensional icons. These are 3D icons that are clothed with what looks like the good life. These icons in the windows are there as models of what it looks like to be happy, to be living the good life. So as we are winding contemplatively through, finally some of these images and tactile pictures capture our imagination. So we go into one of these little chapels and we sort of enter into the spirit of worship more properly. The faithful we pick up, you know how when you go to a f strange church and you're watching other people to know what to do? So we're sort of watching and we notice other people, the way that they enter into worship here is you start, they call it combing through the racks. That's a strange phrase for us, but they're sort of looking, looking, looking. And what you notice is that everyone is in this chapel looking for something. They're on a quest. They're seeking something. They're hoping to find when we come into the chapel, a very kind acolyte welcomes us and says, can I help you find anything? They know we've come looking. <laughs> they know we've come seeking. 
So we are combing, looking through these racks, as they say. Why? Because we saw outside in the window that's what the good life looks like, and that's what's inside here. And so we're after that stuff that will give us access to that good life. And so finally we hit on something. Here it is. This is what I've been looking for. The answer to U2's song, you know, uh, I still can't find what I'm, still haven't found what I'm looking for. We found something finally, and we bring it up to the altar. And there's a little process. That this is a religion of transaction and exchange. And the great thing about this religion is you get to take stuff home right? And so the priest at the altar consummates this action finally and sends us out with a benediction. Have a great day. Come again. And we head back out into the labyrinth. Probably not to go home. <laughs> because the interesting thing is time in here seems to stop. The outside world is walled off. You never know what time it is. Except if we could have a sort of... Uh, um, still photo photography over the seasons, you would see the colors of this pace change with time, with liturgical seasons. Well, I'm not going to tease you anymore. You figured it out. We just visited the mall. Now, why portray the mall as religious? Right? It's not like when you get to the mall, somebody's meeting you there and handing out tracts. This is what we believe. So why describe the mall as religious? What could possibly make the mall religious? Why describe it as a temple, a cathedral? Although it works, doesn't it? Well, what I hope you'll appreciate by the end of today is that the mall is religious not because of the kinds of beliefs it extols, but because of its worship. Because it is a site of liturgical practice. Here's, here's the big takeaway I hope you might take from today. The mall is a liturgical institution. What makes the mall a religious institution is, it's, is that it is a liturgical institution. Now, what do we mean by that? I mean simply that it is a formative institution that wants to shape your identity by shaping what you love. So a liturgical institution is a formative institution that shapes our identity and by shaping our desire, by shaping our love. The mall, like so many other secular liturgies, is after our hearts. Now, if I'm going to convince you of that, and I don't pretend that I have yet, if I'm going to convince you of that, I want to try to show you two things. First of all, we are what we love. You've heard we are what we eat. St. Augustine would say, we are what we love. And I want to talk about that. And then secondly, I want to show you the ways in which love takes practice. Love takes practice. So first of all, what defines us? What makes us who we are? Some might say it's what you know. Others might say it's what you believe. Well, what if the center of gravity of the human person is a little lower than those sorts of heady regions? What, what if the center of gravity of the human person is the heart? Now, it's interesting that that biblical language, that's biblical talk, isn't it? The language of the heart as the core, the seat of the human person, the, the center of our identity. This is not mushy Oprah Hallmark heart, okay? What, what does it mean? It's interesting, the word from the New Testament that we translate heart, cardia, actually means something more like bowels. <laughs> so I actually think in some ways the better translation of cardia would be gut. Now what's going on? To describe the center and core of who we are in terms of our heart, our gut, is it's trying to picture that we make our way in the world at a level that is more visceral and affective and tactile than the heady world of ideas and beliefs. Scripture describes the heart as the seat of the human person precisely because it's the seat of our love. We are what we love. It's our love that defines us, and to be human is to want. If I really want to know what you're about, I'm actually not going to ask you, what do you know? And if I really want to understand 
what drives you, what defines you, I'm probably not even going to ask you, what do you believe? I'm going to ask you, what do you want? What do you long for? For St. Augustine, what we want, what we long for, what we desire, what we love is bound up with what we worship. So that interplay between love and worship. It's not a question of whether you'll worship. It's not a question of whether you love. It's what you love. It's what you worship. It's very interesting to me. Some of you might be familiar with the novelist David Foster Wallace, who died very tragically last year. Uh, has a great little book that was started as a commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. The book's called This is Water. And the, the fascinating insight from this person who is not a Christian is when he says, in the day-to-day banality of life, there are no atheists. But he says that not because people secretly believe in God. He immediately says in the very next sentence, it's because everybody has to worship. Everybody has to worship something. It's not a question of whether you'll worship, it's a question of what you'll worship. So one of the reasons to, to focus on love, desire, our hearts, our guts as the core of who we are is to signify that in a way our fundamental orientation to the world, what sort of directs us and drives us is not, with apologies to my philosophical colleagues, is not primarily on the order of thinking. This is is what gets me in trouble. It's not primarily on the order of thinking. I'm not saying thinking's bad. That's how I pay the bills. Uh, um, (laughs) It's not what I think that shapes my life from the bottom up. It's what I desire. It's what I love that animates my passion. To be human is to be the kind of creature who's oriented by this primal, gut-level, ultimate love. And in fact, sometimes this subterranean, reflective, pre-reflective desire governs us most powerfully precisely when we're not aware of it. And we'll have to say more about that. But to be human is to be a lover. A creature whose orientation and form of life is most primordially shaped by what one loves as ultimate. That's what directs us and aims us through the world. It's this affective, gut-level orientation to the world. We are affective creatures before we are cognitive creatures. We are desiring creatures, which enables us to be thinking things. So think of it this way. When I'm talking about love and desire, imagine it as love is its own sort of understanding. Love is a kind of know-how. So let's try that distinction for a little bit. Um, know-how as opposed to know-what. You, you, some of you have all kinds of know-how, right? Where you know how to do something. Have you ever had the experience of knowing how to do something and then trying to teach someone else to do it and it doesn't go very well? Uh, um, This is like when my kids try to teach me to do Twitter or something, right? They know how to do Twitter, but if they try to articulate to me how to do Twitter, it it goes badly. Uh, um, Think of it this way. Here's a little test. All right. Question for you. Where is the letter F on a keyboard? Thank you. Thank you. That's the example I was looking for. Everybody goes like this. Why? Why? Because there's a way in which your fingers know something that your cognitive, deliberative mind has to do a few somersaults to figure out. I mean, eventually you can do it. But there's a kind of know-how in your body that knows where F is. And it's a bit weird for you to have to think it through. Or try another example for this sort of intuitive know-how. I grew up in a tiny little village could uh, uh, um, make my way on every street and alley uh, um, like the back of my hand know the way from the ballpark to the arena to the uh, Highland restaurant. If somebody, and we didn't even have a stoplight, that's how small this town is. If somebody stops on the street and is passing through and asks me, where is Commissioner Street? I'm like, 
I have no idea. <laughs> Do you know why? Because I grew up here. I was absorbed in this place. I sort of know how to make my way around, but I've never looked at a street sign. I've never seen a map of my town. I have a know-how that enables me to get around, but that's different than the sort of know-what knowledge of a map and a street. Is everybody with me? Does that make sense? So, what I'm saying is that our love is this kind of understanding of the world that operates on the level of a know-how. And it can't always be articulated very well. In fact, some ways it eludes articulation. And here's what's important. Um, a lot of our action in the world is driven by that precognitive affective desire more than our cognitive conscious deliberation. Think of it this way. We are... And, and, and this, is, this is, on the one hand, I'm drawing on ancient wisdom about spiritual practices. On the other hand, some of the most fascinating contemporary so psychology in the field of social psychology. Right? And all of a sudden, these two things start confirming one another. Contemporary social psychology would say that in a lot of ways, our action in the world is more a result of our being pulled towards something that we desire than it is an effect of being pushed by something we think. Does that make sense? A lot of what drives my behavior is my sense of being attracted to and drawn to and pulled towards a vision of what I think is the good life. Less a matter of my thinking through, this is what I ought to do. Now, we can do both of those things, but a lot of our behavior happens on this level. So, and if we had more time, we could talk about the extent to which a lot of our action is what social psychologists would describe as automated action. You learn how to do it. The same way that you learn to type. And now you're not, your fingers know where F is. It happens through this ritual formation and practice that inscribes it into you. Well, that then brings us, if we are what we love, and our love is this pre-conscious affective desire and longing for something, then that brings us to the second theme and this question. If we are what we love, and if a great deal of our action is pulled by what we desire, what we love, what we want, then we have to ask, well, how does our love get shaped? How does our love get formed? How does our love get aimed towards different ends? Well, the answer is love takes practice. Love takes practice. Because our desire, because our love is operative on this affective gut level, the way that our love is shaped and aimed and primed is through embodied practices, through visceral rituals, through enacted stories and images that seep into our hearts. A vision of the good life is planted in us through those sorts of embodied practices rather than deposited into our intellect. Now, how does that work? Well, when we talk about practices, practices are not just things that you do. They do something to you, right? Practices are not just things that you go through the motions. When you're going through practices of that sort, they're also doing something to you. And so I want to talk about the most loaded practices, the most formative rituals, as liturgies. Now, I want you to try for a second to divorce that liturgy language from Christian stuff for a second, okay? Because I mean it in a broader sense than that. What we mean by a liturgy is a ritual of ultimate concern. Liturgies are rituals, cultural practices that, are f that form our identity, that inculcate into us a vision of the good life and they do so in a way that means to trump other liturgies. Okay? So liturgies are the most loaded forms of cultural practices that aim to form my identity, that inscribe in me a vision of what the good life looks like, what human flourishing looks like, and they want to do that in a way that trumps and beats out other liturgies. 
And so we could start talking about what I call in the book secular liturgies. Secular liturgies. All sorts of, if, if you start thinking about it in those terms, all sorts of cultural practices start to take on that kind of hue. And so my goal is ultimately to encourage people to see cultural practices anew in order to appreciate what's at stake there. There is, uh, uh, my kids have been sick of this for years, but when they ask to go to the mall, they, they now kindly come and ask, can I go to the temple today or something, right? Now, <laughs> Uh, um, and they're not happy about this, by the way. I'm kind of okay with it because what I want them to appreciate is what's at stake there. What's at stake? The mall is not just a place for them to go. It's a place that wants them. (laughs) It wants their hearts. It wants their loves because there is a visceral vision of the good life that's implicit in the practices of the mall that when we are immersed in them, inscribes that vision into their hearts, and they end up becoming the kind of people who love that vision of the good life without realizing it. So, and I, I wish I had time to do so here, but chapter three of the book, that, that's, that's my T.R. Reed move, you know, the first lecture is like, well, I'm sorry, you'll have to buy the book. Um, chapter three analyzes several, uh, um, what I call secular liturgy. So you can do, you can analyze what vision of the good life is implicit in the mall and, the, and, and, and marketing, something like that? Uh, you can do the stadium. Uh, I'm interested in the stadium actually as a site for sort of nationalist rituals. Um, and then a third one I analyze is the university. Now, a much more interesting way of seeing this analysis of the university rather than listening to Jamie Smith is to read the novel by Tom Wolfe, I Am Charlotte Simmons, which is a powerful uh, um, anthropological analysis of all the micro practices of the university. You know, scholars, when we think of the university, we think it's this place for ideas. Turns out that's not true. (laughs) Uh, It turns out that if, you know, go to Michigan State or something, the way a lot of students see the significance of the university is football and frat parties, right? Now, those are formative rituals that function liturgically. And, and Wolf's, I highly commend Wolf's I Am Charlotte Simmons uh, as an as analysis of that sort of thing. You could do this with all kinds of institutions. You could do the hip bohemian coffee shop in East Town. You can imagine all sorts of uh, um, cultural institutions and practices that function in this way. The point is this. When we begin to see cultural practices as liturgies, we'll start to appreciate that there is an implicit vision of the kingdom, if you will, that is carried in them, that's loaded into them. And immersion in those practices aims to make us love that vision of the good life. Not by convincing us intellectually, but by grabbing us affectively, by capturing our imagination. Now that insight only matters if you appreciate the antithesis between the vision of the kingdom of God and the vision of the kingdom that's implicit in those liturgies, right? We would only be worried about that. We would only, uh, um, that would only be illuminating and of concern for us if we could understand and appreciate that there is a tension, a contrast, a competition, and I think ultimately an antithesis between the visions of the good life that are carried in these cultural practices and the visions of the good life that are envisioned in the kingdom of God. And that's why it's important that the church and Christian schools and, so, and Christian colleges think about what would it look like to enact countermeasures to those practices. Uh, if you, we, we have a lot of insufficient countermeasures. If, 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 you know... Uh, Okay, here's a stark way of putting it. So I have a 17-year-old at home. Um, Victoria's Secret is pouring images and pictures into his heart and various other organs. Okay? If the church and the Christian school try to sort of counter that by just feeding him ideas and beliefs, do you understand that we're trucking water to the wrong fire? Right? If if these cultural practices are capturing our gut and our imagination, 
but our Christian strategies are aimed at the head, we're, we're not enacting sufficient countermeasures. We're not targeting very well. And this brings me to my, my final theme. I've tried to um, raise the stakes, if you will, by looking at cultural practices as secular liturgies. And I, and I just hope that that's sort of a new lens for people to look at culture. But I also, and ultimately, want us to see Christian worship anew. That is, I want to raise the stakes of what's going on in worship by encouraging us to see Christian worship now as counter-formation. Christian worship as counter-formation. We, we rightly articulate what we believe in the framework of a Christian worldview. But the tangible embodied practices of Christian worship inscribe in us an understanding of the gospel, a a know-how, if you will, of the gospel that is affective and precognitive and grabs hold of our imagination. So a, a tactile vision of the kingdom of God is carried in the practices of Christian worship in a way that can't be articulated otherwise. There is an understanding of God and the world and our salvation that is absorbed through the practices and rhythms of Christian worship that is irreducible. And so Christian worship should be seen and understood as counterformation to the secular liturgies. Now, if you'll give me uh, one minute on a hobby horse, a soapbox. Not... All Christian worship will do that. Let me rephrase that. Not all that currently passes for Christian worship will do that. Because here's the problem. If our worship has just become some Jesified version of secular liturgies, then we have lost the counterformative power. Okay, so and look, there's all kinds of people that uh, models that could be picked on here. But all I mean is something like this: if you've just turned Christian worship into a Jesusified version of the mall, don't be surprised if your worship doesn't actually function as a counter to consumerism. You've just made Jesus another commodity. Or if you turn worship into uh, um, some version of the Bohemian hipster coffee shop. Don't be surprised if it doesn't have counterformative power. A big part of what I'm concerned about here is that if we take this argument seriously, form matters. Form matters. The way we do this matters. And uh, um, this is, I guess, the big burden I I have, and I I regularly blame John Whitfleet for this. Everything that you like in the book, I came up with. Everything you don't like is John Whitfleet's fault. Here's here's the uh, uh, um, linchpin. If Christian worship is going to be counter-formation, then we really need to re-appreciate the wisdom of historic Christian worship. I think that there is a genius and a wisdom in historic practices of Christian worship that carry an embodied understanding of the gospel that seeps into us in ways that are irreducible. And so through the Christian practices or through the practices of Christian worship, we can acquire this tacit know-how that shapes our action. These these practices are meant to form us to be a people who desire the kingdom and who embody a foretaste of the coming kingdom. So before we ever articulate a Christian worldview, we absorb a visceral understanding of God's kingdom in the practice of Christian worship. If, if, as Augustine often said, we believe in order to understand, we might say we worship in order to worldview. I think I just heard Jim Vandenbosch choke on his sandwich a little bit because I made a noun into a verb. But you get the idea, right? We worship in order to articulate our worldview. Before we can do that, we need to be immersed in the practices of Christian worship. For, For example, and relish the examples. Philosophers don't give examples very often. We often emphasize as a baseline of the Christian worldview that God 
announces and affirms the goodness of creation, right? Christianity is not some anti-worldly, escape-from-the-world picture. We affirm the goodness of creation. In worship, we enact that affirmation. In Christian worship, we take up and God takes up the stuff of his creation. Christian worship is not some mystical escape from our embodiment. Christian worship, if you start looking at it, is pretty nitty-gritty, down and dirty, God in the flesh meeting us, right? And when in Christian worship, we t- God takes up and we take up and affirm grapes and wheat and water. But what's interesting is more than that, have you noticed we don't pass grapes around? <laughs> we pass wine, And we don't pass wheat around, we pass bread. Well, what we're also taking up there is the good work of culture making. Both of those are the fruit of agriculture and horticulture and baking and uh, all of the good cultural work. And so in the practice of Christian worship, the goodness of creation is performed in a way. Now, the distinct vision of human flourishing that is implicit in the practices of Christian worship, I think it's important to appreciate, is often and largely antithetical to visions of human flourishing that are implicit and carried in other secular liturgies. Yeah? There is a vision of human flourishing that is carried and implicit in Christian worship that runs counter to the visions of human flourishing we get from secular liturgies. I, 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 was, uh, I would suggest that crammed into the practices of Christian worship is an economics, an understanding of the family, a vision of human flourishing, of politics, and more and more and more. So the heart of the book Desiring the Kingdom is actually chapter 5, where we sort of read a Christian service of worship. And I, again, I, I'm afraid I don't have time to do all of that here, but let me give you a couple of examples. For example, A historic service of Christian worship has a moment of confession and assurance of pardon. Now, I think both of those are countercultural in really important ways. See, what's interesting is if you analyze the sort of worldview that's implicit in the mall, in a strange way, they also have their own version of something like sin. It goes like this Wow you are fat, or you are ugly, or you have pimples, or you are not cool, or you are, and the, the, the mole is constantly announcing to us, aren't they, everything that's wrong with us. There's sin, there's brokenness. The problem is, is in this worldview, there's no forgiveness. <laughs> there's no assurance of pardon. All there is, is stuff to buy goods and services, and you keep trying and trying and trying to make up for that brokenness. So on the one hand, the mall has a notion of sin, but no notion of forgiveness. On the other hand, Oprah has kind of no notion of sin. Believe in yourself. You're great. You're fabulous. You've got everything you need. And then you're immersed in a service of Christian worship, and you realize that it's this two-edged sword that cuts against both of those gospels. On the one hand, it's very uncomfortable to be confronted with my sin and the brokenness of the world. And that cuts against that sort of Oprah-fied believe in yourself. On the other hand, comes the announcement of forgiveness, of mercy, of of grace. And that cuts against the incessant pointing out from the mall of everything that just shames me into buying things. Do you see how something as easy as confession and assurance of pardon, which some of us might take for granted, is actually doing something to our imagination? Baptism. Baptism is uh, this incredibly loaded picture of what it looks like for God to constitute a new people. Baptism is the configuration of a new nation. It's a reordering of the social world vis-a-vis both the family and the state. I, I mean, one of the things I, I love, for instance, about the Reformed liturgy of baptism is it reminds me that as a parent, we are not on our own. 
It cuts against the picture of the family as this autonomous, enclosed unit, uh, 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 um, even the idolization of the family that we sometimes get. Because what you realize is in the liturgy and the rhythms of baptism, yes, we are this unit and we're trying to do the best we can, but in a way the church is our first family and everybody else makes a promise to help us raise these rascals. Um, There is an entire social theory latent in the practice of baptism and in in the liturgy of baptism. So if we're going to think about issues Christianly, if we're going to think about the family and social life and political life, what I'm saying is we need Christian thinkers whose imaginations have been formed from the bottom up by immersion in those practices. Let me try one last one. Uh, um, This is not one in the book. It's a little more personal. The practice of benediction. Do you know the practice at the end of a service where we are sent? Um, And what I want us to see is that immersion in the practice of Christian worship enables uh, us to understand something about God and his salvation that you can't know otherwise. When I was 11 years old, my uh, father kicked me and my brother and my mother out of the house. Three days later, he moved in his mistress into what was once our home and moved her children into what was once my bedroom. I saw my father only very sporadically during my teen years and now haven't laid eyes on him for almost 20. My mother remarried a few years later. Uh, That brought a stepfather into the picture and I sort of had new hopes for a shot at having a father. Uh, He left too. When my wife's parents were divorced, her father-in-law, who had been so significant in my own uh, salvation, faded from the picture as well. And so... It kind of felt like being orphaned three times with the difference that all of them chose to leave. Now, none of this really hit me until I became a father. And I feel like I've often floundered as a father without having one of my own. But the day after my 18th birthday, I became a Christian. Um, And I knew, I knew that I had a father in heaven. But I have to confess to you that that all remained rather abstract for me. In fact, I don't think I ever really understood that until I was in a worship service that ended with a benediction. Now, some of you will find it strange that you could be in Christian worship for a lot of years and not experience a benediction. Let me remind you that that's missing. (laughs) A lot of the elements that I think are important in Christian worship are missing from something like generic evangelical worship. So I remember the first time I was in a service that ended with a benediction. The pastor raised his arms, and he became a conduit of what the catechism calls our faithful father, and he blessed us. And in that act, that doing, that picture, I knew I had spent my whole life looking for that blessing from a father. The pastor's raised arms were always this kind of echo of an embrace, I thought. And that's why whenever there's a benediction, you will always see me with my hands out. Because I'm pretty hungry for that. And that embodiment, that materiality of the experience, reminds me in a way that the theology I knew, I knew the theology, I had all the intellectual pieces in place, but I never understood it. It never seeped into me, I never absorbed it until I had experienced it, and I experienced it. Uh, Look, if I was going to miss church, or if I was going to get to church late, I would go just to get the benediction. (laughs) I have to be honest. Because there's something in that ritual that's good, that's irreducibly wise, that reminds me of something that's true, and I know it in a way that I can't quite articulate. Worship has an understanding that eludes theological articulation. And that's why it's so important that we be immersed in those practices. Now, we have been created as liturgical animals. 
We're made that way. We're primed for that. We're designed to that. We lead with our hearts, as it were. And our being in the world is oriented by what we love. That's why we absorb an orientation to these visions of the good life through things like stories and images and these tangible practices. Secular liturgies carry competing visions of what the good life looks like. Historic Christian worship, I'm suggesting, pictures something different. God's vision of shalom, of peace and justice, of creation's redemption and flourishing. And all of that is crammed into the practices of Christian worship. Now, I think seeing culture through that liturgical lens has all sorts of implications. Actually, in the book, a big part of it is thinking through what does this mean for Christian education? What does this mean for a Christian university, for a Christian school? But I think it also has wider implications for discipleship and for spiritual formation. In fact, I think it can help explain why and to what extent we Christians have become assimilated to secular liturgies. That is, I think this might provide a way for us to understand why we have become assimilated to visions of the good life that are actually antithetical to the vision announced in Scripture. Why? How would that work? For this reason. We have underestimated the formative power of cultural practices. We have failed to discern that they are loaded with an ultimate vision of human flourishing. And we have underestimated the extent to which they are after our hearts. And because all of that is operating on a very implicit level, we miss the fact and uh, uh, um, fail to appreciate the extent to which these secular liturgies have quietly trumped our loves. And so while we might even be thinking and saying the right things, we don't realize the extent to which our formative affective orientation to the world has been captured by other visions of the good, has been captured by other liturgies. The the response to that is not some sort of isolationist withdrawal. Part of it is just seeing cultural practices for what they are, and now you could say, I see what you're doing, right? That's, that's a little bit of a defanging process. But it's also, the, the real impetus is for us to start thinking much more intentionally about what the practices of Christian worship should look like as countermeasures and recovering the lost wisdom in some ways of those ancient and historic practices that come loaded with a vision of God's kingdom and it, its flourishing. I hope in response that we might see what's at stake in Christian worship with new eyes and above all be longing for new hearts. Thank you. Okay, we will have a question and answer period, and if you want to pose a question here, uh, I invite you to step up to the, one of the two microphones that you'll see here in the auditorium. And as you're doing so, I'd also like to uh, let you know that Jamie's, Jamie's books are available for sale out in the narthex and also in the lower level, level of the chapel downstairs. And Jamie will also be in the lower level of the chapel downstairs um, for a few minutes at 1.30. Okay, are there questions for Jamie? Yes. Hi, Jamie. It's nice to see you speak in this format. Thanks. Um, I'm wondering about the relationship between the the historic sources of worship that you're very fond of and that are very meaningful for me as well and the the cultural practices and liturgies that formed those those forms of worship. So, sorry, say it one more time. So the relationship between those historic practices and which? And the uh, cultural practices that formed those forms of worship. For, so the, the relationship between the monastery and the monarchy. Those yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, so I, I think that there are um, 
the church in its wisdom as led by the Holy Spirit over time developed practices and elements of Christian worship that I now think have a transcultural validity about them. But not because I think they dropped from the sky. Not because they're ahistorical or acultural, but because the gospel embraces the scandal of particularity, which is that Jesus is a Jew born in, in, in Bethlehem. I almost said Nazareth. Uh, uh, um, and uh, then sort of flowers out from there. So uh, that said, there's nothing that prevents us from being always reforming and so thinking critically about aspects of our inheritance. Um, th- I also don't mean to make this just sound like sort of nostalgic, oh, wasn't it fabulous, you know, in the 11th century or, or something. Uh, um, uh, though I admit I have those proclivities. Uh, um, uh, the, there's nothing to prevent us from retrieving the wisdom of these practices critically and also inventively uh, um, so that, that we can continue to creatively be faithful to what Scripture is telling us we ought to do. So I, what I don't want to do is fall into a genetic fallacy and say, well, we came up with these practices and really it was about colonial uh, 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 imposition. That seems to me uh, um, we could sort out the, the, the two. Yeah. Is that, is that close? Great. Uh, other questions? I have one from an online observer, uh, but yours is probably easier, so I'll, I'll ask yours. Uh, great, yeah, yeah. Let's stick with the softballs. Uh, real quick, Jamie, thanks for your talk in the book um, and, and for your uh, you know, partnership in the work here. Uh, if you're, and I know some of the response to the book has been in this direction. What are one or two things that you hope will happen in Christian higher education in America as a result of these ideas. So what can change to make Christian higher education more attentive to some of your ideas? Great, thank you. Um, uh, Two immediately come to mind. One is, I hope we start finding um, creative ways to reconnect the church and the college. Now, I think in a lot of ways, there's so much that we take for granted here in our own context about how that works. A lot of other contexts, it doesn't happen the same way. Uh, um, you know, one of the first things I do when I have uh, freshmen, fall semester, their first semester in college, I try to emphasize to them it's so important for you to find a home congregation as soon as possible because I know you might not see the connection, but that's actually integral to you being able to learn here. So part of it is, is reconfiguring uh, 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 that conversation. The other is, and this is again I think something that at Calvin we are doing and, and will continue to do, is thinking intentionally about the curricular and the co-curricular, so to speak. That is, uh, um, teaming up the student life division and the academic division and realizing that we're all involved in the project of education and formation. Um, uh, I've been at other universities where those are just two different worlds, and uh, um, I I think there's all sorts of room to be more intentional about that. The way, what does it look like to live as students and learn as students, for instance? All right, we do have about five more minutes, so I will pose this question. From a, questioner, a question from the viewer at the Linden, Washington remote site. If ritual formations are so significant, then is our Christian faith, our formed identity of the good life, really any different from the formed identity of a Muslim or a Buddhist? Mm, great question. Um, Linden, are you there? Uh, the, the, the way formation works, I think, is the same. But the story and vision that's implicit in those liturgies will be different. Now, that said, I actually hope we will encourage, for example, more Muslim-Christian dialogue exactly along this order because I actually think a lot of Muslim formation and communities are attentive to the antithesis more than we are. That is, I actually imagine a conversation along these lines, uh, um, I'm not saying with Islamists or fundamentalists, but with Muslims who understand a tension between their being in 
liberal capitalist democracies and being faithful to their communities. And I actually think Christians have a little bit to learn from Muslims uh, in that respect. But ultimately, they're different because the story that's carried in the practices is different. Yeah, sir. Yeah, just sort of two interrelated questions. Um, I really like your, your connection between desire and ethics rather than, than intellect and ethics as being sort of the driving connection there. Um, I, was, I was interested in your um, formulation of desire and how that relates to like psychoanalytic notions of desire in ah. which desire is sort of unconscious. You know, we're not really conscious of our deepest desires in some way. Yeah. And also I had a, had a question about whether you're talking about sort of reforming or a redeeming what the Bible called the flesh, or whether you're still talking about sort of dying to the flesh. Great. Okay. Two good questions. On the first one, um, which I've already forgotten. No, no. Oh, desire to psychoanalytic. Um, it is interesting. The psycho- psychological literature I'm drawing on here talks about what they would call the new unconscious. Um, nobody really wants to get into Freud. Because uh, Freud, you're right, there is a dynamics there, but Freud thinks at the end of the day all you ever wanted was your mommy, right? So, I mean, that's a bit simplistic, but Freud actually thinks what you desire is hardwired. The new social psychology says, yes, everyone is sort of primed and aimed in these ways, but in fact, it's not hardwired what you're aiming at. So that's all pliable and shaped by different practices. So uh, um, the new unconscious is not the Freudian unconscious, and, and everybody's kind of allergic to that. Your second question was, remind me, yeah, flesh. So a big part of this picture is actually reaffirming and, uh, uh, um, the importance of our embodiment. But of course, the New Testament language of the flesh is actually not talking about the meat of our bodies. It's talking about a disordered will, right? So flesh, which is very confusing and hard for us, but flesh language is actually talking about what St. Augustine would call disordered love, not the, the materiality of our bodies as such. So very much wanting to emphasize and recover that the affirmation of the goodness of creation is also an affirmation of our embodiment, and that's how God gets to us, through our bodies, And that's precisely the formation that happens through that is what undoes the flesh, so to speak, right? Spirit-led bodies as opposed to flesh-desiring bodies. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I really liked all that you said about uh, critiquing uh, like the mall as a temple and then reimagining our worship space. Um, But I'm also like sympathetic to like the organic church movement, which would talk about, you know, doing church where life happens, whether it's at the mall or it's at the coffee shop. What would you say to those people who are, you know, in a coffee shop church? Yeah, where is not the fight I want to have. What you're doing when you're gathered is what I think is at issue. And and my concern is, I, I think that there is, there are, elements and components of historic Christian worship which are non-negotiable and essential. And if they drop out, what we lose is precisely the formative power of them. Now, if you can do that, if you can incorporate all of those elements and, and um, do it in the coffee shop, I'm, I'm going to put aside my biases and prejudices and say, okay, go for it. I'm happy to see how that works out. It's not so much where, it's what you're doing. Does that make sense? on like the meat of the, the service. So. Yeah, and, and, uh, and I really think that there are these pieces of Christian worship that the church over the years has discerned as essential precisely because, well, they're the way that we praise and worship, but they're also because that's how God is getting a hold of us on all of the registers of who we are. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm worried. I don't want to impose my own tastes. Look, at the end of the day, I want to be in Yorkminster Cathedral, but I, I'm, I'm open to uh, uh, seeing how that looks at common ground uh, if there's a way of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, seeing no more questions, I'd invite you once again to co- come down to the lower level and greet Jamie and his books, and I'd invite you to thank him one more time. Thanks.
Thank you.